Welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. This is episode 317. Ohio Linux Fest Review. Or third time's a charm, depending on which way you want to start it. <laughs> <laughs> this is Torn Bemis. Phil Parada. And Tom Lawrence. So uh, last weekend, we went to the Ohio Linux Fest, and uh, it was pretty fun. Yeah, it was. Tony Phil's... and I drove down on Friday morning, and yeah. we got to listen to... Uh, a Perfect Weapon, uh, the book about Stuxnet. Oh. That was, that was really I good. I heard that book was, is so good. I yeah, really want to read really it. Cool. Especially after the Dark Knight Diaries episode about it. We I listened like, to that first. It, that's, you guys yeah, did, exactly. you did it in the proper order. <laughs> 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 that is awesome. Uh, did Jay go down with you guys? No, he didn't. Oh, okay. uh, it was just Tony and myself. Um, okay. But uh, you both were there in spirit. And we had uh, I wish I was there. tons of SMLR stickers uh, yes. that we passed out to everybody. Yeah. And we have tons more here in the shop. So that's awesome. So I like that. The uh, I was in Florida at the IT Nation event, um, which is much more businessy. But I, I right away found some nerds to hang out with, so I still had I still got my nerd on. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I stayed away from the business talks, hung out with some security people, and uh, had had some fun. But only a couple of them are open source, so I'm I'm excited. I have less to talk about about what I did in Florida. It was, like I said, not as exciting. But you guys have a whole lot to talk about with OLF. It was a free, uh, free software and open source weekend. It was really really cool. Um, we'll get into that uh, in a little bit after the news, though. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to do a show a little bit different. Um, we're not doing this dedicated just to the Ohio Linux as follow-up. We're going to kind of go through our normal show cadence, folks, and then we will, uh, at the end, tie it together with all the OLF uh, follow-up and things like that. Now, I can't tell you what minute to skip to because we don't really have timers here. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> You'll just have to seek if you just want to hear the Ohio stuff or listen to the whole show. <laughs> all right. Uh, so, Tom, how's your uh, couple weeks been? It has been exciting. There's been some changes at Lawrence Systems. I knew I needed to hire a sales guy, so I hired a sales guy, which then he's a bundle of questions the first week, and then he starts selling, and then next thing you know, we're really busy, and I got too much to do. But mm. that's okay. Uh, that's kind of how business is supposed to work, because uh, that's what funds little projects. Like I did a video on the Ponagachi, which I was just showing Tony and Phil, uh, which is a Wi-Fi uh, Raspberry Pi that captures Wi-Fi handshakes and then uses – it's actually, I believe, the same author as uh, Better Cap. And he uses an AI tuning system he wrote. That's what the Ponygachi actually more specifically does, is uh, tunes and optimizes so it only captures the handshakes. So I may do a more in-depth on the project, but I've also been a little bit scared of YouTube's algorithm. Uh, they have been cracking down on hacking channels. And anyone who mentions the word hacking on YouTube may get their channel taken away, banned, or uh, one guy received a 30-day no-upload. Um, what? Yeah, and he just does really open source, talks about GitHub projects and things like that. I mean, granted, he's very in-depth. His tutorials are amazing, but... Uh, he admits YouTube's guidelines, which are fuzzy on it. Um, they perceived it as he was teaching people how to hack, and he's like, I'm teaching people how to use the same tools because whether you're white hat or black hat, you actually use the same tools because you have to. That's mm -hmm. how you know how to defend against it. If I can't use the tool, how do I defend against it? That's the reason we need this type of knowledge. And YouTube looks at it playing with fire, but, you know, then they've been busy with all the other problems of YouTube, so I think mm -hmm. they hopefully leave us alone on the hacking. <laughs> what about your other show, the How They Got Hacked? 
We're not sure. Um, by the way, sitting on the table, uh, a fan of our show sent us how they got hacked whiskey glasses because we've been mm-hmm. drinking whiskey on the show on Friday nights. That's awesome. <clears throat> so someone made them for us because they said we were drinking out of cups and they think we should be more professional than that because we have like Dixie cups. <laughs> 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 and I was like, well, I thought we were trying to go for the uh, college vibe, like drinking whiskey out of Dixie cups or something. But, you know, apparently they thought we, we could be more professional. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty cool. So that's going well. And we're not sure. That's one of the reasons we put it to a separate channel because we knew at some point we crossed the line and um i keep my youtube channel 100 pg we drink whiskey and swear on how they got hacked but if you really dive into security topics you really want to swear a lot <laughs> so <laughs> it's really hard to resist because you it, between face palming and swearing that's how you deal with the uh, the security landscape of 2019 <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> at least that's my opinion um other than that uh, i've I uh, got a new laptop. I've been, uh, you know, running the latest version. I went back to running Pop OS as opposed to Parrot. Parrot mm-hmm. went to, they seem to be having troubles over at the Parrot Linux place, and it was really having a hard time because they went to a bleeding edge kernel, which has bleeding edge problems. So uh, Pop OS for the stable win. And I bought yeah. a laptop that I can just run Parrot back in a VM where it seems to be super happy. But it had power saving features with the uh, laptops that just died. Hmm. I've never been a fan of running uh, any like specialized distros like that as your daily driver. Especially the security distros, well, because you, uh, by default, everything runs as root, right? And, no, that's but, where Parrot does it different. So Kali does, mm-hmm. uh, but Parrot made a distro so you could run it as a daily driver with sudo. And as a matter of fact, um, their sandboxing is incredible. Uh, it incredible, but also incredibly aggravating at times. Like if you try to save something in Chrome, you get to go to the downloads folder. It's restricted. Everything runs in fire jail where it's very restrictive. So it's actually kind of nice. And that was the purpose of the daily driver to run everything kind of sandbox, lockdown as possible. So the mm. applications uh, would limit what they had access to. Even things like uh, dmessage has to be run as root. And so everything has to run as a sudo. So they built it around that concept. And the earlier version of 4.6 worked great. When it went to 4.7, it just, everything broke. Yeah, no. uh, I think they tried to be too bleeding edge. And that's one of the reasons I liked Parrot is because not everything ran as like a single user root like it does in Kelly. I think it was Kelly, like you said, is absolutely purpose built and not something running as root's daily mm-hmm. driver. Kelly's as dangerous as it is uh, useful. Right. <laughs> Tom, now that you have this uh, fresh new ThinkPad without very many stickers on it yet, you should join us over in the Cubes OS world. Yeah. I have thought about Cubes OS. Um, I, I might play around with it. I don't know. I, I, it does run the Zen hypervisor. Yes, it does. I am familiar with the Zen hypervisor, so uh, yeah. I'm a big XCP and G fan. When you're talking about sandboxing and running things as VMs, I was thinking of cubes also. Yeah. I really like it. Um, I like the fact that I can run uh, any different type of distro in its own separate VM, and they've all got a single purpose, like an email distro, a uh, a work distro, a VPN distro, um, even my USB and network are segmented out into their own separate distros. Nice. I'm just such a fan of how pretty Pop! OS is and how well it works <laughs> on my laptop. <laughs> and so I'm, I, I get make the latest version, you know, I updated to it and I'm, I'm a fanboy. So they, the, 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 the nuances and the changes and the font changes are, uh, make it quite pleasant as a daily driver. Yeah. So, of course, I know I've been looking because they removed all the spyware out of it a while ago now, a couple versions. We brought this up before, but deep in the new interface, I was mm-hmm. looking at it this morning when I was going through notes. I'm like, oh, because someone had a review of it just, just to show off the new UI. That UI yeah, is so nice. Sure is pretty. Sure is pretty. Sure does send some data somewhere. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> do, I, do I trade my soul for a pretty UI? <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah, this is a decision we shouldn't be have to make. But nonetheless, uh, that's pretty much what I've been doing for it's been what, almost a month roughly since yeah. our last time because align getting four people scheduled to align is in, is really difficult. Even three people sometimes is difficult. That's why there's only three of us here right now. But we had the pre OLF. <laughs> that was a couple weeks ago. Yeah, that was um, uh, episode three sixteen. Mm-hmm. We we didn't get any real chat in with no. that one. Oh, so. the their their microphone system. Yeah. Uh, that was that was fun. So Yeah. I yeah. should I have videos I broke down on how I my open source recording workflow and I Maybe I should send it to some of them going, you know, this is how, as an open source people, like, I'm very open about how I do this. Like, as open source people, here's the tools you can use. Here's where you download. They're all open source. They're all free. OBS Studio. I mean, obviously, the hardware is the hardware, but, you know, you buy a, uh, a Yeti microphone mm-hmm. is – you can buy a Yeti microphone for like, 120 bucks. You can find them used for less. Yeah. And that's what I use to record um, every one – every video I have on my channel that's recorded in my office, not in the studio where we're sitting now, has been recorded on a Yeti microphone. And it's great. It's USB, runs in Linux great. It doesn't take too much to get rolling on the uh, open source uh, production for everything. And then Caden Live for audio editing, it's it's pretty easy. Yeah. Anyway. <sighs> Tony, you were telling me about a system that you used to use. Oh, yeah. There was uh, – I can't think of the program now that I was using before. but You had it all wrapped in a VM. A, yeah, it was a <laughs> multi-track um, mm-hmm. editor that uh, – and then it, it – we had it in a VM, so everything was set up, and it was actually set up by the Podnets guys, and uh, uh, John Miller. He's uh, in Michigan here, um, friend, and he's a friend of our show also. Uh, he, they got it over to me, and I was using that for a long time, editing the show before Tom took it over. Um, but it worked really well. I really liked that uh, editing. It just took longer than what Tom's process is. Yeah. So that was a challenge. I started, I really uh, put some work into using Tony's, and I was like, this is just, it, it actually took me longer to edit the audio than I can edit my videos with. Yeah. And so when I took the same Caden Live software and used it for editing audio, it's actually super simple to drag the tracks around and just drop them in. Yeah. Yeah. The real power that the other system had was uh, if you're running multiple shows, Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if you're running multiple people, <clears throat> then each people, they like they were all remote, right? Yeah. They would record in their own houses, and you could set up templates for each track. Uh, and then as soon as you get their recording and you throw it in there, and then all the filters are already in place. So that was that was real the power of that, where it would take so much longer. For us, it was just pretty much one set of microphones we sit around. Um, yeah, and Tony, prior to pressing record, Tony adjusts the audio levels to each one of the mics. Yeah, who's sitting at it? So right, and uh, so we only have one set of filters we have to deal with, so it's quicker and easier to do it the way you are. But that's really cool. That could help other projects uh, who might not have the luxury of being all in the same room like us. Yeah, yeah. But if you do use tools like we use Zoom, Zoom auto levels all the people. Mm-hmm. So that's if you do it all in pre-production, it saves you all that time on post-production. Well, and what they were using is, uh, I think they use Mumble. To, yeah. to like chat back and forth, but then everybody records locally to get the best quality on right. a good mic, and then they upload their uh, their individual recordings. Yeah, and that made sense if you're bandwidth restricted. Yeah, which we aren't anymore from when they started. Mm-hmm. Leo Laporte had a uh, thing where he talked about and over on the Twit network of how much easier it's gotten because they started out in the earlier days of ISDN lines and things like that. Now they've moved to, you know, much more modern equipment to do this. Yeah. Cool. Uh, but one project I've been working on the last couple of weeks is IPv6 at my Ooh. house. 
It's the year of IPv6. It is. At <laughs> uh, my house, it is. Question, is the talk going to be done at the Farmington uh, the Linux group of oh. the year of IPv6? He's been doing it for like 10 years now? I Longer? think so. Yeah, and it's been every February. Every February. Uh, That's right. February, so I'm not sure if he's going to do it again this next year. Um, I haven't talked to those guys in a while, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he's back. <laughs> That'd be, it's been his joke that every year he reads it's the year of IPv6. And he really thought it was the first time he did it like 10 or 11 years ago. <laughs> and now it's the running joke is every February that's he's the speaker <laughs> with the same talk. <laughs> he does. He, I mean, he does change it up a little, but... You know, we all know the truth. We're not using it. <laughs> Except for Tony. Tony's Tony's finally bought into it. <laughs> yeah, I've got it running in my house. Uh, it's pretty nice. Uh, I, it's working wired on everything in my house, but uh, wireless. There's something going on with my uh, Unify uh, AP, so hmm. I've got to figure out what's going on there. Um, the other issue, or the other thing is that um, it is starting to be used out globally, and uh, we use it quite a bit, uh, like almost all of our setups now have um the companies have both ip and ipv6 i seem to because i get a lot of messages because i do all the pf sense videos and people ask me questions and i'm just not versed in it so i i just tell people i'm not versed in ipv6 but it seems to be huge amounts of people outside the u.s that's where the demand mm-hmm. is coming from and right. uh because i apparently like I'm, i wasn't familiar with it until you until i've talked to one of these people like you've heard of carrier grade nat mm-hmm. um Carrier grade NAT is is expanded outside of a couple. It's a larger scale NAT implementation, but it's common in these other countries because they don't have that many IP public IPs to hand out. So they're using carrier grade NAT that that way it doesn't interfere with people's local NATs that they have um, in there. And that's common in Europe apparently. They just don't you don't get public IP addresses to houses anymore. Yeah, yeah. So it's double NATing and blah blah blah. So you don't get that public IP. Where if you have IPv6. Then Everything you do get the one. yeah, you get it in, and then you actually what's what I like is that uh, you use the same IP address internally as you would if you were to ex- access your stuff externally. Yeah, uh, and all and so most people are like, oh no, well without NAT, you know, you're going to open yourself up to everybody's attacks and stuff. And but no, the what you have to have is a firewall. Right. NAT is not a firewall and is not security. And NAT was a Band-Aid because we ran out of IP uh, v4 addressability. Well, we didn't mm-hmm. run out, but it was like a solution to stop us from running out. And that's actually what is um, made IPv6 not popular. Because if you remember, and this is actually where MonoWall and PF sense them, this is where they get their interface names. That's why they don't have LAN and WAN as something we started assigning after NAT. Before that, it, it was just firewalls. Right. And... Uh, it's a it, very different concept, and it, only because I've been in network engineering long enough to understand it that there, firewall and NAT are actually two separate things. It's a function within a firewall, not one and the same. Exactly. Yep. Um, anyway, so it's and to use it internally, I, I have it split up into eight different networks, and uh, it works. Uh, it works flawlessly because you subnet it just like you would IPv4. Uh, except for because it's a such larger address space, yeah. then uh, you want to use a, um IP calculator until you get a real handle on how subnetting works with it. I really like using SIPCALC for this. It's a command line based IP calc. Yeah. What? Yeah. We're you know what's just getting installed on my computer right is it, now? Is <laughs> it called SIPCALC or I, SIPCALC? IP calc. But um, the, so with, does it give you the option to say I want to take this prefix and split it up into yes, it eight does. networks or Yes it does. That's it's nice. fantastic. Yeah. So then you just paste in the IPv six address. 
I've used that little utility. Oh, geez, probably going on like eight years now. Right. Yeah, that's cool. And for for most of you out there, you probably have no clue what we're talking about with IPv6. Uh, and how would you get your address? Because right now, internally, you just make up whatever private IP you want to use, and you can subnet throughout your network on the inside there. But um, to do it with IPv6, you have to get it from your ISP or from another IP broker uh, like uh, Hurricane Electric or HE. They do it, and it's free. Uh, but you have to set up a tunnel between your firewall or your yeah your firewall and HE. And that's what I had to do. Uh, so then now they say, okay, you get this IPv6 range. And it's a slash 64. Uh, well, that means there's you have 64 bits of network addresses inside your, your uh, house, which is twice the amount of the entire internet of IPv4. Mm. And it's exponentially twice. You know, so it's twice yeah. the amount of bits, but exponentially... It's uh, two to the sixty-fourth power. Yeah. Uh, Wikipedia states that that is four billion times the size of the entire IPv4 address space. Exactly. In your own personal network. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so you can greatly subnet it and within your own house. Um, but at that point, you just assign it uh, interface on your or each of your interfaces. You can you have both IPv4 and IPv6 address. Sign it on to your interfaces on your firewall, and then there you go. You can turn on DHCP or not. And I like it. Yeah. Uh, so, Phil, how's your uh, couple weeks been? Um, I've been writing a lot for work. I've been uh, iterating on a blog post uh, for Let's Encrypt that will come out um, uh, middle of November mm-hmm. about how we run uh, certificate transparency logs, and I'm very excited to share that with the world. Nice. Oh, very cool. Um, but just, you know, uh, stand, standard home stuff. Um, we're doing a lot of research uh, for our kitchen. Um, I've been doing a lot of woodworking, things to get my mind off of technology for, for uh, a bit. Because, looking at remodeling? Uh, yes, we are. Cool. Um, it's probably going to be a big uh, DIY project, uh, but that means that I can, I can do whatever sort of, like, custom... Uh, RGB LED lighting uh, and all of that. I was going to ask that. Yeah. yeah. That's it, exciting. You're yeah. telling me about your chalkboard you're making. Yes. A I've magnetic been... chalkboard. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, I built the chalkboard. My wife wanted uh, this big, like, three and a half by five foot uh, monstrosity <clears throat> in our kitchen so she can draw on it. It's going to be awesome when it's all said and done. Uh, we both did a lot of work on that the past couple nights. Um, building a buffet table, getting the house just prepared and nice looking for Thanksgiving when all of the family comes in from literally everywhere. (laughs) Very cool. Your house is perfect for that too. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, so the, the Friday morning before we drove to OLF, uh, Tony came over, uh, from work and we put him up for a couple hours or I slept for a couple hours. Yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. Really made a difference. Yeah. Because then you had to get acclimated to being awake during the day, and then mm-hmm. right after you're back, back to the other shift. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, well, it wasn't too bad. I was actually took an extra day off, and then I had my whole weekend, so it was, it was quite a bit of uh, uh, time off, uh, so that was nice. But it was, uh, if I didn't get the three hours of sleep at your house, uh, staying up all the way until, I think it was midnight when we got back from Barley's, that yeah. was... Uh, 
<laughs> that would have been good. Yeah. <laughs> I would not have made it to Barley's. Yeah. But um, all right. Uh, I think we should move on to uh, emails. Oh, yeah. Emails? Listener yeah. feedback. We've, we've got plenty of them. Show at smlr.us is how you get a hold of us. And uh, wow, the people emailed us. Where do you guys want to start? Um, so I'll start with uh, one from a couple weeks ago from uh, listener David. Um, he titled this Networking the Wits End. Mm-hmm. So he he did some uh, Cat 6 runs in his house, and he's he's showing us all of these different uh, uh, iPerf 3 uh, output. And he said, except this is, what I, this is what I should expect to get. Why am I not getting this? And it turns out, after a lot of back and forth, that... He accidentally used uh, CCA wires, which is copper-clad aluminum oh. rather than solid-core copper, Ooh. and maybe maybe just the wrong uh, crank in the wrong part of the cable has just dramatically dropped the performance of his network. Um, so for him, it's probably been a very frustrating time rerunning cables through his house, and I, yeah, I feel yeah. for you, man. Yeah, I've um, I've warned people. I have a couple cabling videos, and I, I what I don't have a particular preference. Like, you, there's a lot of different kind of cables you can buy. Monoprice is a pretty reputable company, for example. But stay away from CCA cable. It is trash. There's a reason it costs about one quarter what other boxes. It's not because it's on sale. It's just bad cable. That that's interesting that you say that it costs a quarter of standard uh, solid uh, copper. Tony and I were looking at some prices, and it's maybe maybe a couple bucks off. Uh, for a thousand foot uh, spools that we were finding. Okay. Yeah. Well, it was probably twenty dollars less than. But, I mean, like, so yeah, if it was a hundred dollars for a, a a thousand foot roll, then it was eighty dollars for the CCA. And wow. That twenty dollar difference is not worth. No. The, and I've I've seen them go for a lot less because uh, maybe it's just some of the bulk sellers that contact mm-hmm. us. They'll they'll have they'll have thousand foot spools for like sixty bucks of that CCA stuff. Now this performance drop, um, it was. It was staggering. Um, what what you should expect on a standard like one gig network, he was getting maybe a uh, hundred meg network performance, if wow. that. Yeah, it's that's so it's rough. He got that figured out. So yeah. David, uh, write us back. Let us know the results of all your hard work. Uh, I'm excited to hear it. For sure. See, I see a lot of going back and forth about Ohio Linux Fest. We saw um, we met a like couple three listeners. different listeners. Yeah, yeah, there. So that was really nice. Uh, we uh, Tony and I took uh, some selfies, mm-hmm. and then there was there was one listener uh, that we were talking to the Free Software Foundation, and we got tapped on our shoulders, and we're like, "Hey, are you are you Tony and Phil from Sunday Morning Linux Review?" And we're like, "Yeah." He's like. I recognized your voices yeah, and that's great. that was really really heartwarming i never thought in my entire life that something like that would happen yeah so it was really cool getting to meet some people all right that's always fun i um i remember i met it when i was at the it nation kind of same thing because i have a lot of followers on my youtube channel people coming up to you and they're like is it okay i'm like i'm here like i post on twitter come say hi to me it's it's, it's exciting i'm not um 
fame-ish, maybe, if you can even call us famous, <laughs> fame-ish, because people know us in our little circles. We're not known outside of the circles of the, you know, the people who follow us, but we're not of, uh, you know, Hollywood celebrities worried about paparazzi. No, no, we can't talk to you. No autographs, please. Like, we're not that. No, no, no. <laughs> Come right. up and say hi. We get it. We're geeked and excited because we're excited. Anytime we find out someone follows us, we're like, really? You do? Why? <laughs> well, never mind why. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so we, we got uh, recently... Um, a message from Daniel Taw. Uh, he is the lead developer of Bedrock Linux. And back in 2012, uh, episode 57, wow. we were supposed to interview him. So then we 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 re-met him um, in person, uh, gave him a bunch of stickers, and I said, yeah, we would love to have you on. But this time, we're going to follow through. So uh, a couple days ago, I sent Mary a message Uh letting her know about all of this. Uh, she'll be traveling for the rest of this month, but I believe the first first or second week of December, uh, she's going to do a Bedrock Review uh, deep dive. So oh, cool. she, she should be coming back for that. And then we should definitely have uh, Daniel on our show. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be nice to hear from her again. Yeah. Yeah. And I have, because um, I have the, the business version of that Zoom account to do the remote recordings like we did before. Mm. So it, that makes it easy to do. Yeah. And then and for all... Linux. <laughs> <laughs> Casey's listening. Yes, it does. We won't make you use Windows to record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, what else do we have in here? I think that's all I saw. Uh, uh, do, 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 do. Yeah, I think that's it. All right. Awesome. Moving on. Because it's been so long, I think there may have been some distros released. Yeah, distro watch. Distro watch. So, let's see. We'll get the, we have the new Ubuntu out. So that's, I, we didn't cover that. That's, that's how long it's been since we recorded, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, well, since yeah. we recorded and talked and, and did a regular show, so. I think we were saying it was coming out that week, that the last time we, yeah, we had to sit down and talk. Yeah, it was October, so uh, it's out. And, of course, then downstream, I'm running Pop! OS, latest version, which Pop! OS doesn't make DistroWatch. Uh, or wait, no, they do. Never mind, they're hmm. number 18. I, I am corrected. So they are uh, trending up, by the way. Remember, I remember we used to do that? Trending yeah. up, trending down. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we usually the top ones, but obviously uh, Debian trending up, Ubuntu staying even, and MX Linux is at the top. Hmm. hmm. I've never looked at that one. Fedora yeah. has a, uh, a release this week. Uh, yeah. Fedora 31 was released. And yep. they said they have the uh, new isolated container feature called Fedora Toolbox. Very interesting. I've got to get all of my uh, Fedora VMs updated to that. All right. I like to stay ahead of the Cubes OS release, um, just just personally, because I know that Fedora's release schedule is every six months, and I want those new features. Now, I'm not going to run uh, Fedora Rawhide. I, I like <laughs> to use my system, not fix it. Right. So it took me a minute, then I realized I'd, I had heard of it. So XIG uh, Zigma? Zigma NAS. Zigma NAS. Open source storage NAS solution, but it was NAS for free. That's uh, mm. name change. That was like, huh? Version 12? How did I just now find out about this? So they have oh, a new version. they BSD based also. Mm-hmm. I think they're meant to run on very lower powered systems for NAS storage. 
if I'm not mistaken. That's a lot of people ask me about it, but it are they and, are they based on uh, or are they using ZFS? Yep, Open ZFS. All right. So it, the problem is, and it's not that people like to claim that FreeNAS is memory hungry. It's not ZFS likes memory um, to optimize itself properly. So that's the challenge of ZFS, not a challenge of the NAS. And I believe mm-hmm. some people complain because now with FreeNAS, it only supports ZFS. It used to, if you remember the the 9 series, I think is where they started dropping it. You could support lots of different file systems. Mm-hmm. They only support ZFS and FreeNAS now. So right. People are like, but that makes it use more memory. I'm like, well, that's the efficiency of ZFS. You don't get ZFS without the memory it's usage. It's for a good reason. It's for a good reason. It's mm-hmm. the way the way the system works. So they went through some of the other NAS systems. And this still has uh, EXT2, 3 FAT, and TFS, and XFAT support. So, so this right. one is a is a big throwback. Uh, Open Indiana has their 2019.10 release. Oh. And Open Indiana is a continuation of the Open Solaris OS. Okay. Um, and it's part of the Illumos Foundation. <clears throat> TLDR, old but cool. Old but cool. Yeah. I got to fix a uh, uh, Zen- Zentiel, I think that's how you say it, Zentiel server. And mm. it's kind of, it was pretty cool. Um, a school was using it, and they had upgraded it, but the uh, tech team that was managing it, less Linux familiar, watches my YouTube channel and reached out to me. Super nice people. They said, hey, we reach out to someone who knows how to fix some permission issues. So um, it has, I got to look at the back end of it. It's an interesting project. It does make AD management easy, so maybe I will review it because it acts as an Active Directory server, and I was surprised how well Windows 10 interacted with it. Like, mm. it thinks it's talking to a Windows server, including they were using a roaming profile feature. That's actually what broke. Um, mm-hmm. It creates a special folder for all the roaming profiles. And when they went to one version to the next, uh, some permissions had to be fixed. So it wasn't too bad to fix, but um, it's still kind of a neat replacement for Active Directory. So if you want to run a central management but don't want to go through the whole pain of a Microsoft one, it seems to have a whole AD force and everything in it. Hmm. So is that like a Samba deployment? Yep. Yeah. Okay. All Samba. Mm-hmm. Samba. Um, it has a lot more features in that, but yeah, it's uh, the latest version here where they add to it. Um, to, to do new version is into Linux server, important enhancements, uh, server development additions. It includes Ubuntu 18.04 as the base. Yep. Uh, integration to SoGo 4.1, uh, pagination of users and domain directory. That was interesting because it was cool, and the way it lists all the users, there were some scroll bars. Uh, they're not running this version because this one just got released. So now they're going to call me again when I break this one. And <laughs> <laughs> And they fixed some open VPN issues with it. So it's kind of interesting because it will do this whole all in one type of server. I believe it's got mail and everything built into it. All but, right. Eh, kind of cool. And I think that's it for the distro watch. Okay, we'll mention it. Mary's not here, but there's some new BSD stuff, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it says Sunday morning Linux review on my sticker. All right. But we know BSD. We They're our co-friends. and <laughs> Specifically, FreeBSD 12.1 yes. has come out. Mm. Yes, which uh, enraged people because apparently the I did a review of the beta of 11.3 on FreeNAS, and they're not using the latest version, and there's a mm-hmm. forum discussion of anger, and Chris Moore is explaining because uh, he's the head of the project for that, and former writer of the um, what's the the desktop? He was the head of before he worked for FreeNAS. Uh, he was the head of that PCBSD. Uh, PCBSD. Thank you. Yeah. So he was saying why they don't use the latest and how they backport things, and 
angry commenters were, you know, caps lock on, fingers on keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> you should run the latest. Ah, we ready to start on the news? I think so. All right. Do you want me to start? Or? Yeah, go at it. Okay, go at it. The Essential Guide, Pine Phone, everything you need to know about this Linux phone. And uh, we were talking a little bit about this, uh, about, well, open source phones and not having Google devices in our houses. Mm. <laughs> and then my phone answered for no particular reason. That proving was very Phil right. weird. Yeah, proving Phil correct that we shouldn't have listening devices around us. I'm not arguing with Phil at all. But we do, phones are part of an essential way we communicate. And the Pine Phone is an affordable Linux phone created by Pine64 makers of the Pinebook Pro Laptop and the Pine64 single board computer. Pine, the Pine phone specs and price design tailored towards keeping it all super low, $149 price point. And this makes me really want one. So one of the challenges is I realize for my business, I'm not going to give up my Android phone. It has too much practical use and function. But when I am not at work, if I would like to communicate with people but not be spied upon, $149 is a reasonable second phone. I would probably still stick Google Fi in it. <laughs> so take that for what it's worth because that's who my phone carrier is. But I'd still be able to communicate. Um, and the reality is uh, I trust the Pine phone better. Like if I turn it off, that it's off and I'm truly offline. But if I need to communicate, I can turn it on and connect to cell towers that I chose to connect to and understand it better. So I think this is kind of a cool concept. I like it. Um, they're comparing themselves to the Libre 5, which is six ninety nine. Um, it's not going to be as powerful as that, but you know what? If I just need basic communications and I'm out in the field, or I need me... a hacker burner phone for $150. Oh, yeah. To me, mm-hmm. that's a great hacker burner phone for there. Um, they both have, both the, the Libre 5, uh, Libre 5, Librem 5, and this have physical, physical switches to turn things on and off. So they got kill switches for Wi-Fi and the speaker on them. So if you want to make sure, like, yeah, I want the phone on, I don't want to reboot it, but I want it off, they put a physical switch on both of these. And by the way, I'm not knocking the Libre 5M. It's a very powerful and also uh, open source phone. So if you're looking for high end and want to try to go all out, that's another one to look at. I thought about reviewing some of the products. The Purism's got some cool products or laptops and everything. Because their open source hardware combined with um, open source software combined with physical kill switches on everything they make, which is kind of cool. No worries to put tape over our webcams. We can just turn them off. Oh, yeah. I've got tape over every single webcam I own. Yeah. Yeah. But that still doesn't solve the microphone problem. No, it doesn't. And that's what, something I think about a lot. Yeah. What's cool is what most people aren't used to is you can run uh, – you can put uh, multiple different U- uh, OSs on it. Yeah. So uh, there's Linux-based ones like Ubuntu Touch or uh, Postmarket and Selfish, uh, Lunos. Uh, but then there's also the Android uh, Replicant that you can so, run on it. So now we're distro hopping on our phones and our laptops. Finally. Yeah. That's, I know. I need, I need to do this. And I, I don't have to use something like CyanogenMod yeah. and then root my phone and get whatever uh, nastiness may or may not be in there. I know. You just don't know. It, it, yeah. That becomes a very – that was always a messy thing. I never liked doing it. I never liked rooting my phone because there's too much confidential information that I do. You know, I, know, I, I think Google may not be good for privacy, but I do trust them for security. So – because if I'm if I get hacked, they can't monetize my existence because I'll be mad at them and they won't be able to do it. So I think they care about that part of it. Yeah, so we'll give Google everything, but and but we trust that they'll keep it only to themselves and not give it to anybody else. Yeah, my yeah. phone just went off. <laughs> <laughs> Mine probably did, but it's actually muted, so I can't hear it. It's probably asking questions right now. <laughs> it was transcribing everything I'm saying. When is it not? It's to it's to improve it. Or something, I don't know. Some marketing yeah. guy has a spin on it. Sudo snap install Caden live. 
So there's now a Snap package available for uh, Caden Live in a Snap store. Mm. And I still think it's a version behind from the app image one. So as I'm still using app image with Caden Live when I edit, uh, I love it. It works great. And it made it easier because um, I found out that when I did go to Pop! OS, the latest version, or Ubuntu, it breaks some stuff in Caden Live that are working on a fix for. The trouble with any of these editing softwares is the dependencies it has and things like the MLT libraries and FFmpeg libraries, and those dependencies cause breakage. So wrapping this type of tool, um, because there's such a tight integration between them, and making sure it works, is it goes, oh, no, we can't run the latest. You have to be one subversion behind on FFmpeg, mm-hmm. or just use this app image, which has everything compiled into it, or a Snap package. Uh, but it's kind of cool. Keen Live, my favorite editing program, is now available on Snap. So. Yeah. But that's the only downside. App image you download, and well, I gotta remember. I go look when there's a new version, and go, oh look, a new version. I've been using the old version for a while. But I do agree that uh, Caden Live is like the perfect uh, example of needing it as a uh, app image or oh, yeah. or snap because of those dependencies that uh, f the the distro. And it's happened before, like you're just saying with Pop OS, that f the distro decides to use a different uh, right. multimedia library, then it's going to break what Caden Live's been developing on. Yeah, and, and then if you try to <clears throat> pin it, you know, you apt pin back a version of FMMPEG, then some other dependency, some other video playing utility that watches the videos or sorts them for you, then then it breaks. So, yeah, it's um, it's a balancing act to try to keep. And, you know, it's hard to get everyone together and uh, get them all in the same room, all the dev teams, and go, no, no, this is how we're going to do it. But, you know, maybe one day I'm wishful thinking that that'll happen. Right. <laughs> uh, now... This is specifically an Nginx fast CGI problem, which people will glaze over and say, yeah, cool, there's a flaw and there's a patch. But I want to talk specifically about Nextcloud. Nextcloud uses fast CGI when you're running it with Nginx. Now, the reason I bring this up is there's an urgent security issue noticed. And as long as you're patching your Nginx, you're fine. It's not something, it's not a flaw in Nextcloud. But a lot of people have asked me about this. And I tell them one of the reasons I don't want Nextcloud for my business is because, well keeping the threat surface small or why I don't like it running on lots of appliances like Synology and FreeNAS is you generally find that the Nginx and all the tooling behind it is frequently behind. And it being behind could mean there's not an update available for like a month. And this is being exploited in the wild where there's a flaw in here that allows arbitrary uh, command execution through this. So this flaw is like pretty easy to uh, if you have a public facing web server people can push it and without my understanding without even being authenticated can get in there push this command over to the fast cgi uh, traverse the directory and execute commands at the same level of permissions that nginx was running at so this is a uh, something that really should be fixed and but in many people running it under an appliance it may or may not get patched or updated uh, that's always been my challenge why like i said just with any of the tools that you run inside the appliances like that, like a free NAS, it's cool. But if it's public facing, it makes me nervous because it may not get the updates in time. Now, one of the things that's unfortunate is that there's no uh, BSD based repository uh, offered by Nginx. You, your option for staying up to date is compiling it yourself yep. or waiting until your uh, distribution compiles it for you. Um, whereas in Linux world, uh, there is a, RPM repository, and there's also a Debian repository, which is very nice. Same with Windows. But I've not encountered, I think, a single Nginx uh, binary running on a Windows machine. Have either of you? No. Has anyone? No, you know, I find, I used to see a lot of people back in the day that ran the combination of uh, SigWin with Apache and that, that yeah. disaster. Um, 
I'm seeing that less. I'm finally seeing companies go, yeah, we decided to surround Linux box. And, and especially in uh, Hyper-V, for example, because Hyper-V comes with uh, newer server installs, we've seen people running Linux inside of Hyper-V. So they have their Windows server stood up for all their functions of their company. And then that, that thing they had to do, some one-off type of task, even if it's just a proxy, I see them spin up a VM to manage the proxy that sits in front of something else or a run center. So it usually runs inside of Linux. And it's because they say it's easier to maintain. Even the Linux guys go or uh, Windows people are like, yeah, we just set unattended upgrades. We know it's patched. We don't have to try to make it work with Windows anymore. <laughs> So that's yeah. actually, that's a good thing. So hopefully no one's doing that. If you are, do do what I just suggested. Don't run, don't run it on Windows ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, there's so many problems with that. Uh, roadmap for Ubuntu official support for the Raspberry Pi 4. Now, this isn't necessarily the Ubuntu desktop roadmap. This is actually the Ubuntu server roadmap that they're going to have a lot of support for the Raspberry Pi 4. Apparently, there's a lot of quirks with Ubuntu uh, with it, but they have some fixes for them, and now they're really focusing on it. And the Raspberry Pi 4, which I keep glancing over, the one sitting oh, about two inches from me, um, it's I've played with it. It's great. The power of it is really impressive. This particular one on a desk in front of me has Kali Linux on it. And uh, I did you set this up with Kali Linux and um, what do you call that? X2Go. It's actually shocking how well that works with X2Go. Mm. Now, granted, you can't connect to Display Zero, so you can't connect to its actual desktop. You have to connect to an emulated one, but it's fast. It works great, um, and it has enough horsepower that you can use X2Go and do something on it. We were actually using that feature um the the other weekend my friend and i were brewing some beer and he has he has a server running uh some brewmaster software but we didn't want to bring the server into the basement so we used x2go on a little raspberry pi uh to get a view of that and now we could have done it through vnc as well right but we had x2go in our pocket so we but, tried that and it worked and i'm fine if vnc mm. kind of went away because vnc i mean there's ways to make it secure but the out-of-the-box is less secure with VNC versus X2Go uh, tunnels over SSH. So as long as you trust your SSH servers, well, and it's single port, and it works well. So, right. And you can have multiple users on at the same time with with that. So, mm-hmm. um, Nonetheless, they have a whole roadmap for it. I thought that was great. So definitely uh, Ubuntu cares, and they're working hard at making more than just the, you know, the Raspbian, which is uh, of Debian. Now, this is a link to Web Archive because they shut it down and closed it down. Uh, we actually covered this a while back. They were trying to breathe new life into the Linux Journal, and Linux Journal ceases publication. An awkward goodbye. And this, I think, is like two years after they said they were going to do it. I think we brought it up on the show a couple of years ago. Um, so they ran out of money, and the website itself is down. So I left a show if you want to read the entire write-up on why they closed and how they have no more money. Um, it's on web.archive.org, and the links will be in the show notes for that. But it's officially gone for good this time, not like last time when people threw money in, I think, and it came back. I, I like this in title, but it's something fun to talk about, which is open source Googling cardboard. So Google open source cardboard. Uh, the cardboard is that cardboard thing, which actually kind of started as a joke that we're going to put a cardboard mm-hmm. thing in town phone. Um, there's something else that you can read into this. Google open sources some things, which I think is great for end of life when they do something, because sometimes it's like, you guys maintain this. We yeah. decided it's not worth it. Um, oh, we'll do that under open source license. Here you guys go, because we're done with this project. I kind of wish Google would do that with more products. We know Google kills products on a whim um, for reasons unknown and unclear even to people who work at Google. So uh, now it's open source and it, it can be played with. 
kind of interesting. Now, Microsoft Defender ATP is coming to Linux in 2020. People are like, what? Microsoft's bringing Defender there? There's a little bit more to the story. So in 2017, when we were at the uh, Microsoft Ignite event, back when people were recalling us the Sunday morning Microsoft review, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and some of those topics, did uh, they were... Azure has an entire threat management. It's called Azure Sentinel, and it ties together with Windows Defender. But where, where this is actually going is a little bit more interesting than that because the Azure, I was told by several people who work in security that they've been playing with Azure Sentinel even when it was in beta, and they said it's a very impressive SIM tool. And they have a different costing model because they, they will monitor your things and charge you uh, based on amount of logs ingested. And you can use a lot of different source feeds, not just Windows. Specifically, what I was actually playing a little bit, I'm starting to learn it because it's a pretty complicated system, but the Azure Sentinel will use Linux feeds. And I looked at it, and someone has a write-up that I have not completed, but I at least seen it works in beta, of how to take your PFSense logs and just send the firewall logs over to Azure Sentinel yeah. for analysis. So you can have a system that may notify you that, hey, these are suspicious IPs, and it's got really good filtering, then it can find a suspicious IP. But it will also do uh, some of the our syslog stuff out of Linux, which is why they're bringing the endpoint part to Linux, not necessarily to defend Linux, but to help sort things out when you have a suspicious connection. So um, it, it sounds like it's a great headline that Microsoft Defender is coming to Linux and people are going, but why? <laughs> um, but don't worry, there is a but why. Just just go read Edge coming to Linux and so then you can just scratch your head. <laughs> it's just through there. It's coming just because to implement a SIM tool on Linux? or I, My assumption is that. So they didn't have – I, I know because there's a download link for that. As for log ingestion, uh, Debian and Red Hat are both – and CentOS are uh, on their downloads list. They have an install script that looks for those versions and uh, you know a bunch of Debian and that. So my assumption is that's why they're doing it. I mean mm-hmm. they have – like I said, they have it like – people going nuts like, oh, they're bringing Defender to it. Well, yeah, but it's more about log because Defender is part of what's needed for the log ingestion mm-hmm. uh, of that. That's what it uses as an endpoint. Um, but they do have a, like I said, tooling that runs on both Windows and Linux for it. It's built into Windows, but you can still get it for your Linux, which makes sense, though, if you're going to use it as a SIM tool because some of the other SIM tools are, well, kind of crazy. Now, this is great because it's gotten funded. Let's fight back against patent trolls. No one hates a troll more than a gnome. The Gnome Foundation has taken the extraordinary step of not just defending itself against the patent troll, but aggressively going after them. This is an important battle, so let me explain. And I'll leave you guys to read. This is the entire write-up over on the Gnome blog. And good news is they attacked a company big enough and well-known enough. So instead of trying to take down someone small, they took on the Gnome Foundation, good or bad. Um, But it looks like they've been well, well well-funded in their fight against the patent troll. Uh, the Patent Troll Defense Fund. Let me see what it's at as of right now. So we, they needed, they had a goal of $125,000, and the numbers have, well, let's see, 138000 That's where they're at now, over 3,000 donors. Mm-hmm. And if you would like to be one of them, we have a link in the show notes so you can continue if you have the funds to contribute to this uh, because, well, they want to kombosh this Patent Troll so they cannot rise up again. So go Machiavellian on them and beat them so hard they're never coming back. All right. <laughs> Makes me happy. Um, I've seen this, and as a Tesla owner, I will discuss my feelings on this. So calling all Tesla owners, let's discuss open source code for the GPL parts of your car. I don't like the fact that no Tesla has not uh, complied by committing back uh, some of the latest versions. Um, I think they do it to keep 
competition. Like I, I like their own reasoning is probably that I don't agree with it because um, they don't want to give their edge to the competitors about how they're doing some of the code updates because their infotainment uh, slash system that runs my car is extremely uh locked down and tight and hard to get any information out of. I know people that spend time reverse engineering Teslas, like this is the hardest thing they've reverse engineered. Like they, at the hacker village, they were reverse engineering at DEF CON, like all the other infotainment systems. And then there's the Tesla, which included in the Tesla game at DEF CON, a sledgehammer, because that was one of the things that they were using just to smash the car out of anger <laughs> because mm. it was hard to get into. Oh, that's fun. Yes. Yes. You spun a wheel and got to choose what you could do. The sledgehammer was always the option. If you couldn't hack something, you could just use a sledgehammer mm. and take a whack at a Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. And the guy, uh, the guy lives uh, here that runs the DEF CON hacker village. Uh, he spends most of his day in a Faraday cage he is great to talk to he is a lot of fun and that's all he does is hack cars cool so uh but yeah tesla's in violation of gpl and i i'm aggravated by it myself uh i don't know maybe i'll do a video and raise awareness but i think most tesla owners aren't thinking about it because they're not i mean I'm, maybe i'm wrong maybe there are a lot of people that work in the open source community and work in tech that own teslas we i'm a gadget geek that's part of the reason i like my tesla um so hopefully uh raise some awareness and bring it up uh, I think the last thing I have, and this is gonna, this is what helps drive a lot of adoption of a tool, and it's Creta. We've talked about Creta before. The open source editing. Does uh, Jenny still use Creta at all, or she play with it some? Uh, she she hasn't. She spends most of her time, unfortunately, locked in Adobe's Creative Cloud. Yeah, and that's that's a problem because you have to pay for it every single month. Yep. Um, when Creta is free, and it's free software, Keeping not not our... just like free in cost. Yeah, keeping our spouses open source is hard, especially when their jobs don't entail that. Um, Removing Google Homes from our houses <laughs> is also hard. Oh yes, my 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 wife really wants us to buy a thermostat connected to Google, and I'm like, I have not. So, anyways, um, on a more positive note, this encourages. <laughs> yeah, I know we can write. I could turn it into a whole different show topic. Creta uh, artistorg and it's a. It's a really cool forum for artists to show off their work. And this, it's, this is what helps encourage a project. They're like, hey, that person has a whole tutorial on how they drew a thing. And then they're sharing their artwork. And I would like to be able to do artwork like this. And I don't have the monies for an Adobe Creative Cloud. Or they would like to stop paying monies to the Adobe Creative Cloud. Which, by the way, Adobe dumped all your data online. That's a security thing I didn't put in here. But mm. uh, look at the latest Adobe Breach. I, apparently, it was some dashboard left open to the public that had all your details and licenses and how much you pay to the Adobe Cloud. And it was just on the internet by accident. Was the breach through uh, Flash? <laughs> it, oddly, it wasn't. It was just left open. Someone oh, was just perusing the internet worse. and found like a Grafana type database thing just exposed. Like, uh, uh, like I think it was Elasticsearch, and mm. someone hadn't locked it down. So, you know, on our security show that we've talked a lot about this, like almost every week, there's another Elasticsearch database left open, no password on it, like just exposed. And Adobe kind of did similar similar to that. Uh, but this is kind of cool. So artists can share the tutorials and uh, share their artwork and have discussions in a, a focused forum only on other Creta artists. So. Now, uh, I just got a message uh, from my wife. She says that she uses Creta for drawing. She says it's fantastic. Um, she hasn't yet tried it for graphics or vector art. And that's where she spends most of her time. Yes. Mm. It's bad at those, if I'm not mistaken. It's really good for drawing. Th and that's actually where the challenge comes in because um, Inkscape is not the same as Adobe. Like I've tried, and I'm someone who used to spend time in Adobe. And if when I used to do graphics work like forever ago, 
yeah, there's just nothing in I'm using the tools and I'm not just, they aren't just different. They're just missing features. GIMP isn't Photoshop. I mean, I've learned GIMP. It took me a long time to learn. And I'm someone who used Photoshop for 10 years before I went there. So I have the concepts of how to do all the layers down, but it's just not there. It's just like, they're, they're just missing features. Like even to add a drop shadow is I think there's like all the steps in Photoshop is one checkbox to add a Mm -hmm. drop shadow. Like that, that's the kind of automation they're missing. So that's my rants about the news uh, in the open source world. <laughs> cool. Tony, what do you got? So I have Netflix optimizes the FreeBSD network stack more than doubles the AMD Epic or EPYC Yeah, it's AMD Epic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's pretty cool that you know, there's a few really big companies out there that you don't think so much of the technology they use in the background because their offering is is really what uh, outshines everything. Um, but Netflix uses BSD, free BSD, uh, on their servers. So in, they wanted to be able to get as much bandwidth out, output from each server because they're, they're just pushing a boatload of video. So they've uh, gotten the, the Xeon servers, uh, so the Intel Xeon servers, they're pushing up, they went from 105 gigs, and then they optimized the network stack, and now they're they're pushing 198 gigs a second. Nice. Uh, and for the Epic uh, processors, they went from 68 gigs a second to 194 gigs gigs a second. That's impressive. That's awesome. So yeah, yeah, they've uh, they made a lot of improvements, and um, and it's pretty cool. You know, it's kind of interesting because we're pushing things at scale. Um, I learned about talking to the people at PFSense because they're doing a lot of work on this particular thing is a vector packet processing. And it's a open, oddly from Cisco, that's open source. If I understand mm. it, no license fees. I, things you don't hear was there. But it's a new way to process packets uh, much, much faster. And in some of the data center level stuff is starting to do this with vector processing. Um, and I imagine they're doing some of the same things and are, they're getting right down to the hardware level for this optimization. Like it requires very specific uh, hardware to do this. And the AMD Epic line has way more lanes of data. So it's requiring some re-engineering to fully take advantage of it. That's actually why I was excited with the new kernel updates because it takes more advantage of the modern AMD processors. But the Epic line, it's going to change the server industry and Amazon's betting on AMD. Amazon's yeah. buying AMD for their data centers. I think That's Google awesome. is too. So, um, which is a big change because I think Intel has ninety nine percent of the data center market shares. Everyone just runs Xeons. Mm. So, That's cool. All right, and the other article I have is uh, Krebs on security goes through and does a breakdown uh, on the Avast and the Nord VPN breaches, and oh, it's really yes. tied to fandom user accounts. Now, I just did a, a initial read on uh, what was going on here, but, Tom, you said you knew a little bit more about it. So, yeah, the NordVPN one specifically was some back-end access, basically like either iDRAC is what I'm assuming, which is mm-hmm. your uh, lights-out management, because I believe that data center was told, and I was in a forum discussion, and they said, because all they said was one of the back-end management was left open. And uh, when they were doing their audit, when they because they do bare metal hardware for their VPN, they don't virtualize it. They all run it raw, forget best performance on there. And once they load it, they're supposed to close off any of that backdoor access. And the, the data center checked the box that it was closed, but it wasn't. So someone was able to get into the lights out management system and basically have, you know, 
the the data center equivalent of physical access to the server remotely yeah. uh, so they can get right to the terminal and they can mm -hmm. get to things and that's how they were able to uh, grab the certificates off that particular box and that allowed them then to publish uh, certs as if they were NordVPN. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a mess, but it's one of those things. It was only one node that was done, and it would require DNS spoofing. It would require more to do the attack, and it would get your VPN stuff, so they would know what you're trying to avoid by putting a VPN on there if someone had it. Mm -hmm. And there's not much out in the wild to prove it was out in the wild. Now, that's really scary. But as far as Dell servers go, I know that there's automation around iDRAC. Yeah. So if you run uh, Dell boxes, you can use something like uh, Rack ADM um, to help automate all of your servers to prevent this problem in your own infrastructure. Yep. Mm. Nice. Yeah. So it it's definitely interesting. Um, and the problem with NordVPN and the problem with uh, oh, Darknet Diaries has a write-up on this as well. The NordVPN wouldn't stop messaging me or any other person who has a YouTube account at all. Uh, they started a massive, massive campaign. And the problem is when you have non-technical people who bought into getting sponsored by NordVPN, they would say, oh, you, the ultimate privacy protection is to mm -hmm. use NordVPN. So it was so much overhyped and oversold. So the community backlash was quite hard because of it due to the fact that it's just it's such an oversold product by every major YouTuber, even the completely non-technical ones, trying to convince everyone they just should use a VPN, and they're just using a VPN logging back into Facebook. You're not doing anything for your privacy. You're just using a VPN. You're hiding it from your cable provider. Um, so, And these VPNs are all set up. Uh, I think NordVPN is registered to a company in Panama and everything else. They all mm. try to set up these, oh, we're not U.S. jurisdiction. Yeah, but you're also mysterious about who you even are. So. I, I've never looked at VPNs. You're just changing who you trust. I don't trust Comcast to sniff my data, so you guys can sniff my data. <laughs> like, okay, cool. Yeah, and if I was going to be a nation state um, wanting to get secrets, well, why wouldn't you just stand up a VPN company? Everyone will sign up. You could get paid to spy on people. <laughs> Think about that for a second. Oh, wait, I bet the CIA, NSA, and every other three-layer agency already has. <laughs> How many VPN companies are just run by them? Right. And you can't they, yeah. they do everything to obscure who runs them. They do that on purpose. They say that's what the protection is, but protection from both sides. Mm -hmm. I don't know who runs it. Yeah, it's tough. The internet wasn't meant to be anonymous. It sucks, but that's reality. Right. Now is the time to talk about, oh, you have, what do you have, Phil? Or as you said, it was your last one, right? That was all I okay. had. Yeah. Uh, all of my notes are for the actual OLF. Um, so let's jump into that. Yes. All right, sounds good. Uh, so... Uh, the Ohio Linux Fest took place uh, November 1st and 2nd, mm -hmm. and uh, Tony and I visited. Um, so so we drove in, and the first thing that we got to see was the Friday keynote, um, and that was uh, done by John Murtick from the Linux Foundation. So uh, the keynote was about the Academy Software Foundation, um, which is a collection of software used by all of the different motion picture uh, industries, or sorry, used by the motion picture industries, but all of the different uh, companies. Um, and this was started in August of 2018. You can go to their website, aswf.io. Um, and it was cool to see all of these different tools getting uh, shared amongst the community and the uptick in contributions to uh, 
these tools once the Academy Software Foundation uh, was started. Mm -hmm. What I thought was significant is that we call it the Academy Software Foundation. That's the Motion Picture Academy that does the Academy Awards. Yes. And uh, so that was really cool. And what they were in their work on how they went to the actual uh, uh, film companies and the projects that they built and what they were currently using they were able to either pull those full projects or, or parts of them to get them open source and available for other, uh, for other groups. And they uh, had uh, analytics of how much was pulled out and how much was used and, uh, and then how multiple companies then were now contributing to those same projects. That was, that was really cool. Yeah, and we got to see everything from the tools used to create explosions and oh, neat. Uh, uh, all these different kinds of effects, and we got a pretty nice breakdown of that. Yeah. Um, so then other things that happened on Friday, um, I joined the League of Professional Systems Administrators, LOPSA, and all I got was this T-shirt. <laughs> um, <laughs> I got to speak with uh, the folks over at Rancher.io. They make a really nice Kubernetes uh, management platform and also um, just – a container management platform uh, based on top of Kubernetes. Um, re really nice folks. I also spoke with uh, Linux Professional Institute. Um, Tony and I did a uh, short interview with the Free Software Foundation yeah. representative there. Um, spoke with Linode and got some free credits. Mm -hmm. uh, and also spoke with uh, Facebook. Um, so then Friday night, Tony and I got to hang out and we installed... WireGuard yeah. on on two separate uh, oh. machines of ours. How'd you like that? It was really cool. Yeah. Uh, it, so I, you, Phil ran it from his uh, VPS at well, at Linode, right? Yep. And then I ran it from uh, it was a physical server I had, but it's on a gigabit internet uh, at Eastern at the university, and uh, we were transferring at 500 meg a second. Yeah, so it was nice. It was cool. Uh, setup was a bit confusing at first because we had never done this before. But mm -hmm. after that, um, setup was simple. So much easier than OpenVPN. Really? Yeah. Once yeah. you once you get your your mind wrapped around the the actual config and the the uh, does it the public private key transfer uh, then or or the public key that you share then. Uh, it just connects. And I, it works I think great. what confuses people a lot, and this is the well, learning curves like OpenVPN, is their intermediary, uh, how everything goes through an intermediary. That we generally, like for example, 192.168.70.0 network mm -hmm. to create the local, and then it bridges with routing rules. That's where OpenVPN confuses. Does it do anything similar, or does it, how does the. It's just routing? an option to turn on routing. Okay. That's all it is, and it, so it works pretty good. So it simplifies that a bit. Yeah. It's. Um, and that you would have to do, I think you'd have to do additional routing if you wanted to send all of your traffic across that tunnel. But uh, by default, it'll just route to that other network back and forth. So it's more similar, the way we set it up on the simple setup, mm -hmm. it's more of like a point-to-point uh, or like a remote site okay. kind of. Um, and anything that's on that local resource, it'll add a route that things on that local resource mm -hmm. go to that route. Okay. So this would easily be very simple to replace IPsec tunnels. Got it. Um, yeah. So we compiled it. Uh, we both compiled it from source, but on our different hardware, it took less than a minute. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I know it's really small. That's where I'm excited is it's got a very small code base. Therefore, uh, it's just easier to audit, easier to... And it has undergone an actual audit. Oh, it has. Okay. That part I was, uh, I was less than clear on. Yeah. I knew they were working on it. I didn't know if it was completed. I know it was on the roadmap. And not only was the uh, compile time fast, then it, so it creates the uh, kernel modules, and there's no reboot that has to happen. It's just applies DKMS them. DKMS and, and... Yeah. It, yeah, and uh, it's just like a, almost like an if up, but it's like WireGuard up, and then your tunnels are connected. It's pretty cool. Or WG, what is it, WG net up or something like that? So, something very simple like that. Now, I let me uh, rephrase what I said about the audit. It has undergone a partial security audit. Okay. Uh, so it was incorrect there. Yeah, that's because that's one of the things, like, a lot of people have been, I get a lot of messages like, hey, can you help me set this WireGuard up and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, until it's official, mm. I don't think I'd run it for business yet. Like, I, I'm excited as a toy to play with it, and I've seen results. That people tell me, like you did, like, it's really fast, but I'm like, until I've because I run a lot of things that are very critical in VPN tunnels. Like, I right. have to make sure that they can't be popped. <laughs> no, I really like that idea about replacing IPSEC tunnels mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. That's pretty nice. Yeah, very simple to do that. No one likes it, except that's that's. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I say it's simple to do that, but uh, the your vendor has to support it, right? So PFSense doesn't have support for it yet. Nope. You're not going to be running it on a Cisco firewall. No. Nope. So uh, what you would do is you would set up a, a separate uh, uh, VPN server, and it, a Raspberry Pi will do it for for small bandwidth stuff. Um, uh, but um, and you would do the point to point, and then on your PF sensor, on your firewall, your Cisco, whatever firewall you're running, you just say you point a, a route rule that points to your VPN server, and then it will route it across the VPN tunnel. So uh, I'm not a big fan of it. We actually play with it, but it works. Um, OpenSense, the fork of PF sense, mm-hmm. they've integrated WireGuard. Oh, cool. Yeah. They've integrated a couple things that I'm really hoping come to PFSense because they have uh, both WireGuard and um, ZeroTier integrated. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys have ever played with ZeroTier, but it's a pretty cool project. Won't get sidetracked on that. But, yeah, that's neat, though, that they have that supported on there. Uh, And isn't it going to be a part of the kernel in Linux? Uh, I believe eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Linus really liking the code, which – you know, he didn't bash it, so mm-hmm. he didn't hate it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's really saying something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to say the last I heard uh, that the next, what, 4.7, is that what you just said? I was kind of zoning out there for a second. 4.7 is supposed to have it built in. Five. 5.7. Yeah, or, we're, 5. we're up 7. in the fives, oh. Tony. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Tony, yeah. Tony is uh, ready to go to sleep. We're past his bedtime. <laughs> and yes, this is recorded in the morning, but he's on the midnight shift. <laughs> um, so then uh, moving into uh, Saturday morning, that's when everything really kicked off. So Tony and I woke up, uh, we grabbed some breakfast, and then we walked into the conference lobby. And the first people that we got to talk to was a little animation studio based in Ohio called the Markley Brothers. And they've got this this—they've got this py- uh, Python project, I believe it's called Your Face. Yeah. And it's a motion capture plugin for Blender, but you don't need to have any of the motion capture gear. And they showed it off and demoed it, and it was really, really cool. That's neat. I actually seen that. Uh, they have a demo video on their uh, website, too. So We got to see it live. Oh, When you say better. you don't have to have motion capture gear. Like you don't you have don't to have those white dots. Or, yeah. It, it actually just uses your voice, right? Isn't that how he was demonstrating it? No, I believe it uses your face because it's capturing a facial expression. Yeah, your yeah. face. And we can, oh. we can actually get them uh, on our oh. show uh, to talk about it. Um, they've sent us an email. 
Right. I, so I think, and what like during his talk, he was demonstrating that it's a combination of the, your your face, like for moving around, but then for to get the mouth to move, that's what's hard to get uh, like points to to track you. So they uh, are using audio to to uh, animate the the mouth. Oh, that's really clever. Yeah. Hmm. It's still pretty neat, and it's open source. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, we also got to talk to um, a vendor called Orchid, and they they produce some sort of uh, blockchain Ethereum-based uh, VPN service. Um, Tony and I tried to dig up uh, some more information about that, um, and we're just a little bit unclear, but that's our own fault. We'll do some more research, and if you want to check it out, it's called Orchid. So at the closing uh, uh, after party, I talked to one of the guys and they did a little bit of research into it and it's, um, uh, it's still in it. Like there's, there's no release yet for you. It's still like in development. Uh, so it's something interesting to, to read up on and figure out what, uh, what it's all about, but it's, uh, it's, they're trying to tie in block blockchain with payments and with, uh, tracking the nodes that are available out on the internet. Hmm. So it's it's interesting. It's just I uh, w- wouldn't really. Uh, I'm not ready for it yet. Yeah, I, I'm not gonna like um, uh, vet them or or I'm not gonna like. Uh, what yeah, is, yeah, know, but it's interesting to see these different projects coming up for the blockchain. I mean, it's got to be useful for something, right? Mm-hmm. I think the the blockchain technology is useful. It's all the cryptocurrencies that become the pain in the butt. So, <laughs> blockchain itself for an audit trail, good. Everything else and every buzzword attached to it, bad. <laughs> right. Um, so moving on to the uh, Saturday morning keynote, this was given by uh, Ricky Ensley. Um, and she she talked about how will you steer your open source career? And so for some history on her, um, she got her start in the early 90s as a journalist for the uh, Sysadmin magazine. And she's now a Red Hat developer advocate. Um, and she... She interviewed uh, a whole bunch of women in various aspects of the industry and then re-interviewed them 10 years later. And I've got some uh, bullet point notes of quotes from these different women. Um, So uh, the first one, uh, Emma Jane, uh, she states, technology doesn't need to be the passion. Technology can be the thing that lets you do your passion. And then she also goes on to state that don't be afraid to be opportunistic, uh, especially in open source technology. It helps to have a wide variety of skills. And that's something that I was actually uh, warned about um, during my first job. I was told by my boss at the time, Phil, you want to specialize in something. And I always thought to myself, no, I don't. I want to be a jack of all trades. And this lady's quote uh, backs up um, what I was feeling. And I've got this open source career, and I think that I've uh, been doing pretty well for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's uh, another lady, uh, Vicky Brasseur. She says, be technologically curious. Everything I have a plan for in my career eventually gets derailed by real life. Uh, it becomes a depression session. And then if we go back to Emma Jane's quote about um, having a wide variety of skills, well, if you've if you siloed yourself into some very niche uh, part of the industry, well, having a wide variety of skills can allow you to bounce back. Um, and then Erica Stanley states, 
I don't think it happens a lot that the thing you want to do ends up being what you actually do. Um, such as, let's say I had a dream of becoming an astronaut. Realistically, that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> For her, it actually did happen. Uh, she she wanted to do something in technology, and then she's actually doing that. So she's uh, very lucky. And she also states, don't let fear stop you. Find a group, peers, and possibly a mentor who will support you. And then just having this this network of people that you can communicate with um, even even if not for your career, just for your own like personal life, that can always help. Yeah. Um, there was uh, an interview. There, there was specifically a quote from Cat Allman's mother, uh, who says, "Cat, it's easier to ride the horse in the direction it's going." <laughs> yeah, I thought that was funny. That's a good quote. And then uh, the last quote I have is from Erica Brescia, who. Uh, founded Bitnami, and she's now the CEO of GitHub. She says, trust your gut. This is especially true uh, for women who have a lot of self-doubt. Imposter syndrome is real. Don't sweat the small stuff. And if you leave a company, don't go out like an ass. Mm -hmm. Don't burn bridges, man. Yep. (laughs) Um, And then the next talk uh, that I got to go to was infrastructure is code using Terraform. And this was given by Greg Greenlee from the Insight Company in Cleveland. And uh, some background on Greg. Uh, He's been in the industry for about uh, 13 plus years or something. Um, He he founded the Blacks in Technology Foundation. And uh, so his his talk, um, Terraform allows you to define an infrastructure as code. Uh, and the application definition as well. So you can say like, hey, I want to have these load balancers, these uh, firewall rules, these security groups, um, these particular servers, and I want them to have these ports open in a declarative fashion. And that lets you use uh, software methodologies such as static code analysis and linting and even testing on your infrastructure. That's so incredibly powerful. You don't have to... You can use it on virtual machines. You can use it on physical hardware. Um, you can use it in the cloud if you've got uh, VMware or QEMU or Proxmox. It's available to you. Um, he states that infrastructure is hard, and as systems administrators, we spend a lot of time fretting about this when, in reality, we should be focusing on the business outcome that that infrastructure provides. So let's code it once and then iterate on it and anyone new who comes into a business can say, okay, here's a definition of the infrastructure. We don't have to ever go back to the days of, well, Tom runs this, or Tony runs this, or Phil runs this, and they've, they've left now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it's just this mysterious black box that's running somewhere. We I, don't have to have that anymore, people. Yeah. I, we, one of our takeovers is going to be a place that we're taking over because the IT guy suddenly died, and they literally have zero pastors. The whole company is like – Site-to-site VPNs for four locations. Nobody even knows a single log in any firewall. Mm. So, yeah, you got to. It's documented. It's making sure the code's done right. It's uh, that's a, such an important aspect of it. So then I went to the slow MySQL database analysis um, talk given by Rolf Martin Hoster, and Rolf works at Mailchimp, and he's part of their dedicated uh, uh, database administrator team. Um, they've got three permanent DBAs and two occasional DBAs. So MailChimp, um, they run about 35,000 
uh, databases spread across 2,200 distinct MySQL servers. Wow. Um, that, that equates to about 3 billion queries and growing per week. Um, and his, his takeaways are that you can't inspect every single query. What, what you need to do is run something like uh, Percona's PT Query Digest, collect all of, this, all of this data, and ship it off to a centralized logging solution, such as like the Elk Stack, which is Elasticsearch, Logstash, and Kibana. Um, he has a demo available on GitHub. I'll find it and put it in the show notes. Everyone, especially if you deal with databases in any sort of fashion, should check this out. Uh, because there's a lot of useful utilities gained through like the trials and tribulations of running this massive stack of That's databases. A, that is a big stack. Um, he also stated that we should check out a talk from the Scale 16X conference uh, by Frank, and I'm going to butcher this, Frank Lanure, called Analyzing MySQL Bin Logs. And then his last important bit of information to impart is that the entirety of a user's experience is that of a single session, not just a single database query. Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then um, I went to, I learned about trust from Kyle Jenkins, and this is, this is trust between people. And uh, he, he told us a story about how um, he, he never really started getting like, he never got invited to go places because his response was always, yeah, maybe I'll go. And he said, you know, I'm going to change this. I'm going to stop saying maybe. Just do the thing or don't do the thing. Be confident in your decisions. Um, start putting your commitments on a calendar so you can actually see them and be accountable even to yourself for your commitments. Um, if you don't have a mission or a purpose, Try and find one, even if it's something simple, and then define it. Define what you want to do and clarify your expectations to other people. So it's not, hey, I need you to make sure this thing gets done. Well, what's that definition of done? Um, like if I'm going to remodel a kitchen, what is the definition of done for the kitchen? Is it, well, we can cook food in it again, but <laughs> the drywall's not up, right? Mm -hmm. Technically, the kitchen is, is done to me. But it might not be done to my wife, for instance. Um, and he says, always keep learning, because if you keep learning, that means you're asking questions and communicating with other members of a team. And they can, they can see that you want to keep growing, so they'll have trust in you. Um, because instead of becoming stagnant and only caring about the small set of things that you care about, well, you want to have a broader base of knowledge. And then always reflect. Um, reflect on conversations, reflect on how the past week went, uh, that sort of thing. And that, that leads nicely into uh, the next talk, which was lessons from a recurring career in management given by Stephen Pritchard. And his number one takeaway was reflect. Um, <laughs> he states that when hiring, you want to hire for personality. And technical skills can be learned, but you can't teach people to be people. And so then I asked a question about, what if you have someone with a bad attitude? And he, this, this sparked a pretty lively discussion about um, keep notes of any, like, offensive interactions. And then those notes can be used for praise when the attitude becomes less bad. But corollary to that, um, 
you also have to keep notes on like good interactions with you have you have with the rest of your team so that you aren't singling people out. Um, Stephen's uh, management uh, process is the same as the golden rule. Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, don't micromanage people. And micromanaging can manifest itself as weekly one-on-one -on -one meetings. For some, that amount of uh, communication is just too much. Um, again, set expectations. Yeah. Say, hey, maybe we can have one-on-one -on -one meetings once a month or every couple weeks. That way it doesn't become a burden. Mm -hmm. um, and he's, he says, keep notes and provide a status report up and down the chain of command. Don't just wait for someone to ask you, hey, what's the status of a project? Have these notes and give a status report before someone comes knocking on your door. And that's, that's being uh, proactive. And then um, he wants us all to read the Phoenix Project book. I haven't yet, but it's, it's been on my bookshelf for quite a while. I know that this uh, Phoenix Project book was big in the uh, DevOps movement started several years back. I'll tell that to my list. And then um, the, the next one was Advanced Site Reliability Engineering by Patrick Schuff. And uh, uh, Patrick talked about what it means to be a site reliability engineer. Um, and there's a whole bunch of different definitions of, of that term. Uh, to him, it means you're a hybrid software and systems engineer. You have an understanding of the operating system, the syscalls, memory, memory usage, uh, disks, um, the OS, etc. And you focus on monitoring and reliability of systems as a whole. And during this talk, he got really deep into the weeds of the networking stack, specifically the OSI layers 2, 3, 4, and 7. Um, that was really cool. And he, he gave us an overview of BGMP, ICMP, TCP, and how all of those work, and different Python and curl commands to investigate network problems. Um, and he, he stated that the SS tool is a much better replacement for NetStat, and that for network administrators, we should not be blocking ICMP, because that that breaks uh, discovery on the internet. And I see Tony. Yeah, the, the whole name ICMP is messaging protocol. That's. Yeah. Yeah, it's need, it, it's much more than just ping or traceroute. And uh, the final keynote um, was given by John Mad Dog Hall. He's as old as a dinosaur, he was there at the. He the was there at the first line of code. Yeah. <laughs> In the beginning there was a the first line of code. <laughs> he is he is very very funny. I loved Great. listening to him. Um so he gave an inter, uh, an overview of the history of computing. Um and he said something really poignant that remember that humans are more important than computers. And that's that's what I like to think and uh he gave some cool stories about uh, Linus Torvalds and uh, how we got how Linus got his first Alpha Systems computer uh, from the Digital Electronics Corporation, and uh, John Mad Dog Hall had some help in there. Um, he also gave a, a funny anecdote about Richard Stallman and the founding of the Free Software Foundation. Well, in 1983, uh, Stallman was attempting to install a printer on a computer, but he couldn't. 
and he couldn't figure out what the software was doing. So he said, to heck with this, and founded the Free Software Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> so still to this day, uh, printers are the bane of our existence. Yep. And Stallman for so They'll for start almost a whole religion <laughs> around it. And then he... Uh, he ended this keynote with an overview of the Unix wars, and that was really cool. Oh, cool! Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah it was. It was really cool. Um, I'm, I am. I think you got more out of your event than I got out of mine. I enjoyed mine, but <laughs> I'm, my heart's with the open source community. <laughs> One of my favorite talks was uh, about Linux graphics software, and so we were talking about it earlier when we were talking about Krita. Uh, so his talk, he he covered a little bit of Krita uh, and what you would normally think of is like GIMP and uh, Tux Paint. Uh, but then he went into like a bunch of other ones, you know, graphics and SK1 and Blender. And and not only did he talk about them, but then he had examples of how he used it to automate or create things. It was really cool. I always uh, liked all the different levels of automation you can apply to any of these, which just makes it that much more extensible. Yeah. I had goofed up a bunch of videos and busted out some FFmpeg and flipped those videos back around the mm -hmm. right way because I made a mistake. But then I unmade the mistake with a script. That's right. <laughs> on a series of videos. That would have been, like, hard to do anywhere else. <laughs> yeah. Fix all these videos. Rotate them properly because Tom did not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> ah, well, I think you've reached. Is it anything else for the good of this class here? Um, yeah, we, we, Tony and I did a bunch of interviews, um, during the hallway track. Ooh. I think we've got something like, and we will, there's six of them, I think. And, um, well, it's about 20 minutes of audio. All right. So, uh, we'll I already add... went through and edited it and crunched oh. it down. So you just have to, to plug it in. I'll, I'll attach them. So when we are done, we're going to wrap up Sunday Linux review here. Then, uh, we'll jump into those interviews would be the, uh, addendum to the show. All right. <laughs> So okay. you've been listening to the Sunday morning, Sunday morning Linux Review. This was episode 317. The Ohio Linux Fest recap. Uh, this is Tony Bemis. Phil Parada. And Tom Lawrence. Thanks. So hi, we are Phil and Tony from the Sunday Morning Linux yeah. Review podcast. Nice to meet you. Uh, here at the Ohio Linux Fest. And you're Rob. Yes, and, sir. Uh, who are you here representing today? Uh, the Free Software Foundation. Very awesome. Uh, is this your first time at the OL OLF? It is not. No, uh, my partner here, uh, who is not here yet, uh, Albert, and I have been here probably the last six years. So we, we're here every, pretty much every year. Very cool. Yeah. It's my first time. Excellent. Uh, how long have you been with the Free Software Foundation? Oh, I've been a member of the Free Software Foundation since 2003. I'm member number 826, if I remember correctly. Oh, nice. So, But uh, I've been, like I said, volunteering with them for probably about six years now. That's awesome. Uh, so is there any talks you're uh, going to be able to get out and see, or are you going to be here at the booth all day? I'll probably be at the booth all day. Yeah, that's one That's one of the drawbacks about volunteering is sometimes there's some really cool talks. Like a couple years ago, uh, I didn't get to hear John Hall, his talk, but uh, he did stop by the booth, and I got to talk to him for a little bit. Nice. And I missed uh, Drew Levine uh, from B the oh, yeah, uh, from FreeNAS and BSD. So I, I missed that talk. That was disappointing. But yeah, it's one of the drawbacks, but I get to come here and represent Free Software Foundation, and that's always a, always a good thing. Awesome. Well, thank you for your service yeah, with thank the you. FSF. I ah, appreciate that. Thank you. Hi, I'm here speaking with... Greg Greenlee. And you just presented on Terraform, is that yes, correct? Yes, yes. Infrastructure is code with Terraform. 
so tell me a little bit about that uh, for our use uh, for our listeners who might not know what Terraform or Infrastructure as Code is. Yeah, so Infrastructure as Code is really just a way to describe your infrastructure and source code, uh, and it gives you you know different uh, various different things uh, benefits uh, in using it that way, such as version control. Uh, you can now use software methodologies uh, in order to to work with your uh, your infrastructure, right? So now. Version control, you can do um, uh, uh, linting, you can do automation, you can do testing, all that type of stuff that a person would normally do with their own software or with their own code, you can now do with the infrastructure. Do I have to run Terraform uh, anywhere or do I have to have like a cloud account? What's the different ways that I could use it? So you can uh, you can actually run, um, it. the way I always uh, say is that get a free a free account at a, at a cloud provider, um, AWS, Azure, Google, they all have free tiers. Uh, and then you can download Terraform locally, and then you can uh, you can build your infrastructure. Uh, you can play around, test things, and then you can just do a Terraform destroy, and you can just destroy anything that you build. And that's a real low-cost way of doing it. Uh, but there, Terraform operates on a various different providers. So if you have like a VMware cluster or something that you have running in your data center to use for testing purposes, uh, you can run it there. So you don't necessarily need a cloud provider. Um, it's there, but Terraform actually operates on different providers as well. Okay. And how long have you been using Terraform? Uh, I've been using Terraform for the past three years. Do you think yeah. it's changed the way that you uh, system administrate? Oh, yeah. Drastically. Uh, no more manual stuff. Um I mean, just the ability to be able to automate a lot of the things that you used to do either through just scripts. I mean, you can automate scripts as well, but scripts are not uh, idempotent, meaning you run a script once um, uh, or you run Terraform once and uh, you get the same result every single time you run it. So if you have it create one instance, it's only going to create that one instance unless you specify more. Uh, With scripts, not so much. and then having to maintain like a bunch of scripts and things like that, it, it definitely changed the way I look at automation and the way I look at systems uh, engineering. Very cool. Well, thank you very much, Greg. Thank you. And you have a Appreciate good Ohio it. Linux Fest. All right, you do the same. With the road noise. And... All right. So we're walking back from North Market. We just had lunch there. And we're heading back to uh, uh, the conference. We're walking here with uh, it's Phil, Tony, and Joel from the Linux Link Tech Show. So, why don't you say hi, Joel? Hey, guys. Oh, let's get out of the wind. Yeah. There we go. The wind's bad. All right. So, uh, so you're just telling us uh, about how much you love the food scene here in yeah, Columbus. I've, I've been in Columbus since I, I came here for college, stayed, not married and all that, but. The best thing about, one of the best things about Columbus is just the food culture in Columbus is just so varied and so interesting. You got places like the North Market where Tony and I had barbecue and just across the way, Phil had ramen. So, I mean, it's just a magical combination that I've found in very, very little in other cities. Columbus has that everywhere. It's not just here, like, you can go all over the place in Columbus. There's places, like, they have traditional English uh, fish and chips place called Old Baganales. It's one that's been, that one actually started out as one location. Now there's about five of them. 
Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> that's just how it works, you know. Then you got places like, uh, they're not from Columbus, but Giordano's from Chicago mm. opened up a place here in Columbus. And you get that stuff everywhere in this city. Yeah, there's a, a bar that we usually go to, uh, Bailey's, just on the street here. That's Bartley's. The Bartley's, yeah. That's good food and, uh, and good yes. beer. Yeah, here we go. Yes, in fact, there's a, if you like that kind of stuff over in German Village, one of my favorite places to go is uh, the Hey Hey Bar and Grill, where they'll have like things like, uh, I don't know if you're into it, but uh, Limburger cheese sandwiches. Uh, sauerkraut balls. Sauerkraut balls, yes, absolutely. Is, is the doors open here? This will All right. Yeah, the sauerkraut balls here are fantastic. I mean, Farley's has them, but the Hey Hey's are better. Way better. What is the signature Columbus food? There isn't one. <laughs> oh, okay. There really isn't one. I mean, like, so you'll get people come in town and they're like, oh, I gotta go to Schmidt's for that cream. Right. And, like, there's. There's know. so much good food here that I really can't pick one. Yeah. I mean, you got Schmidt's has a German style, German food, everything from hot German potato salad to sausages. You know, it's not like Detroit is very much. Let me see if I get it right. Chili Island. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think so. I mean, Columbus is, is it, it runs the gamut. Yeah, I think at this point it's trying to be beer. Be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's brew pubs all over the place here in Columbus. Yeah. So I mean, you are not at a loss for good beer in Columbus at all. Yeah. All right. So, especially if you're not into. Uh, mass produced beers. Yeah, I guess it kind of comes down to where you're going to be any particular night or you know, like an area of town because mm-hmm. there's a lot of good stuff everywhere. Yep. Awesome. Yep, like, like one of my favorite places to go uh, with the family is uh, on South High Street, a little place called Dan's Deli. Yeah. Or Dan's Driving, I mean. Dan's Driving. <laughs> They're, 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 they're not open, weird, they're open weird hours, and they're not as busy used to be, but they're still okay. Every time I've gone there, it was really slow, so I've been not going Yeah, yeah, <laughs> They got new owners. See, Dan's <laughs> drive-in is weird. It has a lot of the traditional drive-in food, but the, guy, the original guy who owned it was Greek. So you can get Euros there. Well, that's funny. Have you been to Ari's? Ari's? Yeah. I've heard of it. Because they do uh, Euro omelets and stuff like that. Right. Starliner. Um, Very fun. Everybody got to come here for the food next year. All right. Hi, I'm here with Stephen Pritchard uh, at Ohio Linux Fest 2019, and I just sat in on his presentation on lessons learned from a side career in management. So, Stephen, what are some of those lessons learned? If you could give us a quick recap. Um, be a good person. Um, treat other people the way that you want to be treated. That's one. Um, be organized. Uh, do status reports. Uh, do uh, keep notes for performance reviews and embrace those things as opportunities to manage up and down the chain. Um, hire for personality. Uh, I would have to look at my notes to, to think of uh, much else. You mentioned uh, servant leadership. Could you uh, talk about that for a moment? Sure. Um, so I'm a big believer in managers not being there to tell people what to do, 
but rather to be there to make sure that people can do their jobs, right? And uh, so uh, the, the thing you want to do is um, look for roadblocks, help people eliminate the roadblocks, um, you know, give them priorities. Again, the important thing is just to make sure that people can do their jobs. And then if you could recommend a book, uh, what would you choose? Phoenix Project. All right. I'm a big fan of that book. Thanks again, Stephen. And try not to be Brent. <laughs> That's good advice. Appreciate it. No problem. Hi, I'm here with... Patrick Shuff. And where do you work at? Uh, I currently work at um, EFUSE here in Columbus, Ohio. Very cool. And so what do you do? So uh, historically, I've uh, been a site reliability engineer. So um, uh, I, my background is primarily in coding and Linux, um, but for the last six or so years, I've been spending time uh, on networking teams and specifically load balancing and CDN related uh, technologies. So I've got some questions uh, for the network engineers out there. What, what should uh, network engineers be doing? What should we not be doing? Network engineers? Uh, and, and other systems operators. Okay. Well, um, I think you know one thing I see uh, in in my time, uh, you know, working on technologies that are very close to uh, the internet and the I guess the edge of the the network is um, the blocking of ICMP. Um, one, ICMP is a really important protocol for making sure the internet works properly. If there's an MTU issue uh, or anything like that, um, if you block ICMP at your company organization level, then the clients or servers are never going to see it. So you're going to cause a lot more network disruption um, by doing that. All right. Um, do you have anything else uh, to impart on us? Not at the moment, uh, but I'll keep thinking it back to you. All right. Thank you for your time. Talk about the future. We are in a wonderful place we have a lot of users out there that know nothing about software freedom. They use their Android phone, they punch in their applications and stuff like that. They don't know or care about freedom, and we have to educate them. Some companies, I've been told, love open source. I've dealt with them for a long time. Notice that they don't say that they love Linux. They love open source. What's the difference? Open source protects the developer. Open source gives rights to the developer, to the company using the code that other people have written. Free software gives that support to the end user, gives the protection to the end user. I have a drawer full of little computers that I can no longer use because the company that made them ran out of business. And they use firmware that I can't replace. Let's talk about love for just a second. In the ancient Greek, there was two types of love. There was agape, the love of God for humans, the love of mother for children. But even the love of mothers is not without a cost. If you love me, you'll take out the garbage. If you love me, you'll bring the dog. But your mother will still love you. The godly, the greatest love. Then there's philos, from which we get philosophy, philosophy, philanthropy, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Philos is the love of friends for one another. The 
than we have eros, the deepest, dirtiest love, the sexual love, from which we get the word erotica. Some of these companies love free software on the eros level. Don't bend over in the shower and wear your contents. We are close to world domination. The 500 fastest computers in the world run Linux, most used in embedded system design. 60% of the world's servers are being shipped with Linux. The desktop is actually now 10% installed base, 10% Linux. And it's selling through Android and Chromebooks and things like that at a much higher rate. We are close, but you have to keep fighting. You have to make people understand the business models around free software, that you can make money with free software, and that the goodness of software for the public use. If you pay for software in your taxes through the government or through education, you should have the right to use that software without having to pay for it again. You need to talk about free and open source all the time. Be a pain about it. Make it so that people run away from you when you come. <laughs> because you're the front line. You're the front line, right? You have to talk to your politicians, your educators, K through 12. There's plenty of software out there to teach kids K through 12. University. We should have, no, there's no reason why university students, particularly in computer science and computer engineering, should not be using open source. No reason. Maybe 25 years ago, there was a reason. Because when you went out to SourceForge, you'd find out that there was 13,000 applications out there and 1.3 million people adding to it. But now when you go to GitHub, there's 430,000 applications and 26 million people contributing to it. And there's almost an application for almost anything you can do. And you don't have to use all of the application. You can use a portion of it as long as you obey the license. Industry. Bring products to market faster, cheaper. Why should you be paying for something when you can get all the functionality you need for free? And if you need to make changes to it, you can hire a local programmer to do the work. I tell people the United States is actually 50 small countries. I live in the small country of New Hampshire. We only make two things in New Hampshire, maple syrup and software. And I'm tired of sending all my money for software to the small country of Redmond, Washington, or Silicon Valley. I am quite frankly tired of that, especially when I have software programmers out of work. So I say, let's keep the work here, because those programmers will then buy local food, local housing, and pay local taxes. We should all be thinking like that. And next year, I want you to bring two Windows programs to the Ohio Linux Fest. How many of you have ever heard the story of the invention of the checkerboard? A king in China wanted a new game. 
And the mathematician said, I'll invent a good game, I'll invent a good game for you. It's going to be a board with these little squares on it. But what I want, and he invented the board, and the, and the king was so impressed with it, he said, how can I be paid? He said, I want two grain, one grain of rice in the first square, two in the second, four in the third, and so forth and so on. The king said, yes, your wish is granted. The king was not a mathematician. <laughs> because by the time he got to the 64th square, there wasn't enough rice in China to pay for it. So if we do the same thing, you people bring two Windows users to OFL next year, and then they bring two Windows users to OFL the year after that, and they bring two. In 10 more years, we will have world domination. <laughs> <laughs> These are some of the projects I'm working on. Linux Professional Institute is ongoing. We're, forming, we're going to form a membership. Become a You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y. <laughs>